If you would please take your Bibles or devices and go to the Gospel of Matthew. If you're visiting with us and you need a Bible, there should be one in the chair in front of you. There's a black Bible there. If you pull that out, go towards the back. They renumber the New Testament. So you can go towards the back and find page 25. Matthew chapter 28. Matthew 28. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 28, page 25 in that black Bible. 25 in that black Bible. Matthew 28, I'm going to read the first 10 verses. Resurrection Sunday, of course. I've got to talk about the resurrection. Notice my verbiage, got to talk about the resurrection. I say that on purpose. You'll know why. Matthew chapter 28, I'm going to read the first 10 verses. Now after the Sabbath, as it began to dawn toward the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to look at the grave. And behold, a severe earthquake had occurred. For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled away the stone and sat upon it. And his appearance was like lightning and his garment as white as snow. And and the guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. And the angel answered and said to the women, "Uh, Do not be afraid, for I know you're looking for Jesus who has been crucified. He's not here, for he is risen, just as he said. Come, see the place where he was lying. And go quickly and tell his disciples that he's risen from the dead. And behold, he's going before you into Galilee. There you will see him. Behold, I have told you. And they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy, and ran to report it to his disciples. And look, Jesus met them and greeted them. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, verse 10, Do not be afraid. Go and take word to my brethren to leave for Galilee, and there they shall see me. The technical name is called funambulism. Funambulism. Are you, is anyone here a funambulist? Nobody? Okay. A a funambulist is someone who has the skill of walking along a thin rope, a tightrope walker. Funambulist. Hey, what do you do? I'm a funambulist. You're a what? Right? This is according to Wikipedia, that is. Acrobats who are tightrope walkers, they maintain their balance by positioning their center of mass directly over their base of support. Shifting most of their weight over their legs, arms, or whatever part of their body they're using to hold them up. When they're on the ground with their feet side by side, the base of support is wide in a lateral direction but narrow in the back to front direction. In the case of high wire walkers, their feet are parallel with each other. One foot position in front of the other while on the wire. Therefore, a tight wire walker's sway is side to side, their lateral support having been drastically reduced. In both cases, whether side by side or parallel, the ankle is the pivotal point. Some famous tightrope artists, I'm sure all of you know about this, but I'll just you know, humor you and let you know about these. Jorge Ojeda Guzman. He was Ecuadorian high wire walker. Listen, he set the Guinness Book of World Records tightrope endurance record for living 205 days on the wire. Now that's just sick, you know what I'm saying? I mean, wow. I, you know, 205 days. 
How do you, well, never mind. I won't go there. Okay. Another one, Charles Blondin, a.k.a. Jean-Francois Gravillet. Uh, is that good French? Uh, bonjour, comment allez-vous? Whatever. Uh, he crossed the Niagara Falls many times. And then this guy, I'm going to botch his name up, Freudor Motsevov. Uh, he's Russian. He's known to perform numerous tricks as rope walking while shooting, carrying another person, wearing stilts, dancing, even being unbalanced by pyrotechnical explosions. Now that's a Russian for you. Yeah, that's cool. So what in the world does this have to do with the resurrection? Mm -hmm. I title the message, Walking the Tightrope. We have to walk the tightrope when we're talking about the resurrection. You might say, why? What are you getting at? We are walking the tightrope between orthodoxy and orthopraxy. We can't go too far on one side or the other. There's danger on both sides. Orthodoxy means right thinking. Orthopraxy means right living. You must maintain the balance with your focus upon Christ Jesus himself, the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Your love, your devotion to Christ. You walk, we walk on the tightrope. And if you go too far on one side or too far on the other, there's danger. Why do I say that? If you go too far towards orthopraxy, right living, then we have the potential of being theological liberals. You have people filling churches right now that do not believe in the physical resurrection of Jesus. The historical, physical, real resurrection of Jesus. And people come to church. Come to church. but they don't believe in the resurrection of Jesus. If we go too far towards orthopraxy, we have the potential of being theological liberals. On the other side, if we go too far towards orthodoxy, we have the potential of being practical, practical impotency, or in other words, dead orthodoxy. No power. We just believe in some fact and then we just go about our business. This is the danger. So, no, as I said, because we have to talk about the resurrection. No, we don't, but we do. But we must maintain this balance. So please, you can get your poles out and maintain this balance and walk with me on this tightrope. Now look, understand. I'm not saying I don't believe in the physical, historical, real, true, genuine resurrection of Jesus, nor am I saying it's not important, because it is. I mean, that's, uh, next thing. The resurrection is the central event of uh, God's redemptive history, the cornerstone of the Christian faith, the climactic event of Christian history and New Testament theology. All that we are, 
All that we have, all that we hope in as followers of Jesus is the resurrection. This is the climax of Matthew's gospel in every gospel, Mark, Luke, and John. All our hope as Christians is based on this. But, but, but this is why we must focus on the risen Christ, not on some uh, theological truth or the implications of the physical or of the, of the uh, theological truth, how we live. God has vindicated his son by resurrecting him from the dead. The most spectacular of all miracles. The most incredible of the claims of Christianity. Yes, it's true. If there's no resurrection, there's no Christianity. We read that in 1 Corinthians 15. Because if he didn't resurrect, it means Jesus was an imposter. He was a nutcase. It means that his death was not a true atonement. And it means there's no point in us being here today. But see, this is why it's important for us to make sure we're walking this tightrope because there's some that have gone too far towards orthopraxy and now it's just theological liberalism. We'll talk about that in a moment. I'll unpack that more. We'll look at Matthew's gospel, the first 10 verses, but we're gonna spend most of our time on the implications of this resurrection, okay? But let's walk through it. I have points for you just like the good preacher does, discovered, resurrection discovered, verses one through eight. Oh, by the way, this is not an account of how Jesus rose. You understand this, right? It's how his resurrection was discovered. No one ever saw Jesus leave the tomb. Also, keep keep in mind, the stone was removed, not so that Jesus could get out. Help, 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 Gabriel, let me out. Okay, hold on a second, Jesus. Gosh, crying out loud. That was a joke. <laughs> Nor, but it was, it was there to let the women in and the disciples to come and see the empty tomb. So notice it says the first day of the week, which is Sunday, Mary Magdalene, verse one, and the other Mary, they came. There was a severe earthquake. Uh, the, the stone was rolled away. Verse three, the parents of the angel who was sitting upon the stone was, was like lightning, white as snow. The guards shook for fear. The angel came to show them that Jesus had already risen. He removed the heavy stone. Notice what he says to them, verse five. Don't be afraid, I know you're looking for Jesus who's crucified. Verse six, he's not here, he's risen. The father resurrected God the son. Notice he says, just as he said, it shouldn't surprise you They were told this by Jesus himself. You should have known, duh. Notice he says, come and see the place where he was lying. This is the correct tomb. It's not the wrong tomb. It's not the wrong location. Come see where he was lying. And then notice he says, verse seven, go quickly tell his disciples. He's risen from the dead. He's going before you into Galilee. As far as the angel was concerned, this was truth. This is a reality. We cannot deny what's being said here. And notice the response from the women, verse eight, they departed. They're they're both afraid and yet they're excited. Fear and joy, a natural response to this type of appearance. They had hope now in place of their despair. 
The promise of seeing Jesus again. And notice all of a sudden, which is the next point, Jesus himself appeared. Look, Jesus met them, verse nine, and greeted them. They came up and took hold of his feet and worshiped him. Now they knew with even more certainty. Adoration, praise is what happens when we see Jesus for who he is, the resurrected sovereign Lord. Worship happens. As this testifies to his bodily resurrection, not a spiritual resurrection, bodily resurrection of Jesus. And by the way, in the first century, women were outcasts, nobodies, inferior. In Jewish culture, big time. So all you ladies, what an amazing thing that Jesus appeared to in that society were outcasts. Women got the news first because God is arms wide open to outcasts. Anyways, notice Jesus himself says, don't be afraid, verse 10. Take word to my brethren. I'm gonna see them there. Go to Galilee. So, Jesus truly, historically, factually rose from the dead. Okay? That's just there. Okay, but why the tightrope? Because the fact of the resurrection brings two implications. Careful doctrine and careful life. What do I mean? Let me unpack this more for you. If we go too far towards orthopraxy, we may lose our focus, our mission. Orthopraxy means right living, doing good. If we go too far to this side, we may lose our focus, our mission. Well, the next question that comes to your mind is, what's our mission? It's not to pursue a political agenda. It's not to eradicate slavery, sex trafficking, human trafficking. It's not to eradicate the poor. That's not our mission, people. Here's the mission of the church. From what is the mission of the church? The book. Go into the world and make disciples by declaring the gospel of Jesus Christ in the power of the Spirit and gathering these disciples into churches that they might worship the Lord and obey his commands now and in eternity to the glory of God the Father. That's the mission of the church. That's our mission. That's our focus. This is why we're on this earth. That very reason. To put another statement, we are on this earth to proclaim God's excellency in the gospel that sinners who are not worshipers of the one and only true God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent may become a worshiper of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's our mission. To focus on Christ, to lift up Christ, to love Christ, to worship the Lord Jesus Christ. That's our focus. That's our mission. And to tell other people, hey, Want to become a follower of Jesus? Hey, want to become a worshiper of Jesus? That's, that's to you. If you're here, you're not a follower of Jesus. You're not a Christian. You're here and you just come or whatever. 
This is what it means to be a Christian. You repent and put your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ who had to die and he was resurrected from the dead. That's the gospel. We proclaim this message to all. So why did I say theological liberalism? I didn't say political liberalism. Theological liberalism. Because theological liberals have divorced doctrine from living like a Christian. They've, they've, they've ripped out doctrine and, and the thought process for theological liberals is to be a Christian means to be a, a nice person. You, you do good things. You help us somebody who's in distress. You help the poor. You eradicate sex trafficking. So now that equals Christianity. So that you have major denominations, Episcopalians, Methodists, Lutherans, not all Lutherans, there's some that are still conservative, actually theologically conservative, and Baptists. And at one time, we're part of the Southern Baptist Convention. At what time? At one time, the Southern Baptist Convention. They were liberal. They're the only denomination that was liberal and has come back to being conservative, theologically. But these major denominations, they have, these have rejected the truth of the physical, actual, factual, historical resurrection of Christ. Christianity is, is divorced from that. That's not even part of Christianity. And then you couple along with that that there is, uh, there's other ways to God, there's other ways to Jesus, he's not the only way. I have up there Galatians chapter one. Paul says, even though we are an angel from heaven should preach to you another gospel, contrary to that which we preach to you, let him be a curse. As we've said before, verse nine of chapter one, so I say again now, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to that which you receive, let him be accursed. What gospel? That Jesus physically, actually, historically resurrected from the dead. That gospel. You, you can't divorce orthopraxy from orthodoxy. You can't do that. You gotta walk the tightrope. You have to have both. If you go too far on one side, there's danger. You're gonna fall. But that's what happens. What has happened to theological liberalism? In other words, to them, it's all about living a good moral life, advancing your political agenda, uh, helping the poor. It's the social gospel. what the Salvation Army is now. It didn't used to be like that. The Salvation Army used to proclaim the resurrection of Jesus as a physical, actual, historical reality. You don't better not say that now. Salvation Army does not teach that now. If you go too far being a good, nice person, then we're just really good, nice people. 
But the reason for us being good, nice people doesn't come out. By the way, we don't need to give a handout in order to have a voice to give someone the gospel. Nowhere in the Bible does it say we have to give someone something to someone monetarily speaking in order to have a voice to give them the gospel. There's nowhere in the Bible. In short, the main focus, uh, uh, message or focus of Scripture is not to alleviate the poor. Not to mention the fact almost all references to the poor in the Bible is the poor within the covenant community. So it's the pious poor or the righteous poor or the godly poor. It's not to alleviate the poor. It's not to advance a political viewpoint. That's not the point of Scripture. It's not. It's not the point of the Bible. The church is not called to be, as one writer put it, the social custodian for everyone in their society. That's the danger of going too far towards right living, towards orthopraxy. It's not our focus or our mission to advance social justice in the world, friends. That's not the point of Christianity. And if you think that with all due respect, you're wrong. You're wrong. If we go too far living a good life, we end up losing sight of our mission. Our mission, we preach Christ and Him crucified and resurrected from the dead. That's the gospel. Because people need forgiveness of their sins. You can feed them all you want, but they can be fed right into hell. but what about this side? If we go too far towards orthodoxy, we may lose our heart or our power in Christ. Practical impotency. The focus must be Jesus. The focus must be worshiping and loving and adoring the Lord Jesus Christ. If we lose our focus and we go too far that way towards orthodoxy, then it's just powerlessness, no passion. In other words, we may lose our heart or passion for Christ and the power to live out Christ in our everyday lives. In short, impotency. A powerless gospel, dead orthodoxy. Here's a... Uh, maybe I guess you can call this like an illustration basically like the Pharisees it's just religiosity that's all it is look we do serve a God who promises to rescue the needy we serve a God who calls for justice toward the helpless Jesus called us called us to lay up treasures in heaven not on earth he told the rich man, sell everything, give it to the poor, and then come follow me. We're called not to be greedy, but to give generously to others, especially those in need. This is how we should live our lives in the public sphere, within our government, with our neighbors. This is the corporate life and witness of, for us as a church. Uh, how 
Do our neighbors perceive the way we live? Do we have lives that display concern and care for others? Do we really love people? Do we reach out to the outcasts? Do we reach out to those in need? You see what I mean? The church has a stigmatism in the world. People may feel inferior because of us. Because they know their lives are screwed up. So you mention church and they feel guilty, not to mention the fact. I say this carefully, not flippantly or abruptly. We come across hypocritical, ignorant, and judgmental of their struggles with sin, especially the sin of addiction. Or or with their um, psychological classifications. You know, we should be the hospital for spiritual problems, for those who deal with addictions, drugs, alcohol, pornography, gambling, prostitution, food, those who struggle with depression, anxiety, PTSD, the local church, listen, is God's primary agent for change. Because we believe in the resurrection, we have resurrection power. That's what we have. And yet people dealing with, you know, they, they go to a psychologist who goes to this big book, the DSIM, and says, you're bipolar. You have been dealing with depression. You have PTSD. You're this, you're this, you're this, because you got this, 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 this. I'll give you a prescription, there you go. But what does it not tell them? How do I deal with this then? Right? We know how to deal with this. Because there's someone who's called the great psychologist. Psychology means the study of the soul. Psuche is the Greek word for soul. Psycho, psuche, soul. Ology means study of, the study of the soul. Who is the studier of the soul, friends? It's the one who wrote the book. We have it. That's why, oh, uh, if, do I have it up here on the screen? No. Oh. Darn it, oh well. Ephesians chapter one, verse 18. I thought I was gonna put it on the screen, but that's okay. I'll tell it to you anyways. Ephesians chapter one, verse 18. Ephesians 1, 18 through 20. Paul writes, I pray the eyes of your heart may be enlightened, so that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what's the rich, glorious inheritance in the saints. Verse 19. And what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us to believe in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, verse 20, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. And that theme of power is throughout the book of Ephesians so that Paul is telling the Ephesian and other believers, you have the same power in you that resurrected Jesus from the dead. So Jeremy Camp's song, the same power that rose Jesus from the grave. 
The same power that commands the dead to wake lives in us. Lives in us. The same power that moves mountains when he speaks. The same power that can calm a raging sea lives in us. Lives in us. He lives in us. He lives in us. Even more. The song that Chris Tomlin just had. He has now resurrection power. You call me from the grave by name. You call me out of all my shame. I see the old has passed away. The new has come. Now I have resurrection power living on the inside. Jesus, you have given us freedom, no longer bound by sin and darkness. Living in the light of your goodness, you have given us freedom. Friends, that song is based upon this. The same power that resurrected Jesus from the dead lives inside of us. Chris Tomlin again, he goes on, I'm dressed in your royalty, your Holy Spirit lives in me. I see my past has been redeemed, the new has come. Freedom, you have given us freedom. My chains are gone. Freedom, you have given us freedom. You have given us freedom. Hallelujah. That's the truth of the gospel. Friends, don't we believe God's word is sufficient to deal with the most common sins known to man. Adultery, pornography, drugs, alcohol, gambling. And yet we end up like this. We think about living our own lives and we're just doing our duty. I go to church. We got all the right thinking. We got all our T's crossed, our I's are dotted. And yet there's impotency. Powerlessness in a church. You know, it was the Ephesian church that Jesus said, there's major problems with you guys. You guys got right thinking? Oh, you guys got right doctrine? Oh, you're so good. But you've lost your First, love. We, we have the answer. Jesus is the answer. For all these things, pornography, drugs, alcohol, depression, anxiety, PTSD, someone who's bipolar. And friends, this is why what's called the emerging church, they reacted the emerging church reacted to this. They, they saw this imbalance on this tight wire and they saw we're falling into danger so they reacted and pushed the young people and the millennials all onto this side. So now, this is Christianity. This is what they think Christianity is. Advancing your political agenda. Giving to the poor. And that's what they equate Christianity is. We got we got to be on the tightrope. Don't lose the power of the gospel. But it's not just about doing good deeds. You walk in a tightrope. So, in the one hand, oh yeah, we end up like this. We think about living our own lives and doing our duty. We just go to church. That's what I said earlier. So, in on one hand, let's hold fast to sound doctrine, calling people to repent and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's truth. That's the gospel. Okay? That's what the gospel is. 
That's our mission. So we don't go too far this side. But yet also, on the other hand, let's be a people who stand out different from this world and how we treat them, but really how we treat each other. And then they would come to us for help with their drug problems, with their alcohol problems, with their gambling, porn, because we have resurrection power. We're walking the tightrope with Jesus Christ and our love for him, that's our focus. He is our focus. Our love for him. It's not just be about theologically right. It's not just about being a good person. Walk the tightrope. Father, help us to have a passion, love for the Lord Jesus Christ. Protect us as a church from theological liberalism. But protect us from a church from being powerless, impotent. We end up just being, just doing our own thing living our own lives and then we just do our duty by going to church and yet there's people that are hurting and they need help but we're unwilling to do we're unwilling to do that we need your grace Lord Jesus to love you and as you said Lord Jesus, as you said to the Ephesian church, help us to remember where we have fallen. Help us to repent. Help us to do the deeds that we did at first. Help us to do this. Help us to look really to Christ, who is our first love. time I would ask for you to just take a few moments to ponder what we've heard from God's word we'll have a few moments of silence for you to ponder and think what we've seen what we've been challenged from God's word today and then we'll do our time of giving and we'll sing two more songs and have our closing prayer Take these few moments. Proclaim the gospel of grace to yourself. Maybe ask the Lord to remind you to love the Lord Jesus Christ and to worship him. And after a few moments, we'll continue on. But just some time to ponder.